Hey, Miles. Have you ever noticed how many civilians in the Marvel Universe turn out to be secret agents? Wait, uh, are you talking about Peter Parker's parents, Jay? No, but same franchise, actually. I was thinking of Gwen Stacy's uncle. He worked with this guy called Sentry. You mean Robert Reynolds, the Void guy? No, no, different Sentry. Uh, this, this one ended up working as a double agent for the Xenox. The aliens Professor Xavier faked his own death to fight with the power of love during the Silver Age. Right, those guys. Anyway, the Xenox had Sentry take on the identity of Senator Robert Ward and assigned him to infect Senator Kelly with a mind control virus, but he was thwarted when Kelly wouldn't shake his hand because he didn't want to give Ward his cold. <laughs> I know aliens thwarted by the common cold is a sci-fi trope, but I'm not sure I've ever encountered that variation before. Yeah, Kelly may have spent a lot of time as the bad guy on a lot of fronts, but I do feel like he'd at least be one of the few elected officials still wearing a mask if he were, you know, real and around now. So what ended up happening with Senator Sentry? Oh, uh, Gwen's uncle found out about the mind control virus and pumped Sentry full of the antidote until he exploded into a fine mist, which spread to and cured everyone he had previously infected. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 405 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to you being back, Jay. It's so good to have you back on the show. Thank you. It is good to be back. Although I gotta say, it was awfully fun listening to you and Al. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, Al did such an astonishing job. Like, I'm psyched to be recording with you again. I'm sad to not be recording with him anymore. Like, maybe we just need two podcasts. That sounds like way too much work, though. You know, I, at this point, yeah, what's one more podcast on top of everything else? It's it's all kind of academic from here. Right? Because, um, yeah, you, you have a, a, a small human, which is awesome. I was, I was thinking more about grad school in that context, but yes. Oh, well, that's I, I do also have, yeah, yeah, um, T and I have a baby now. They're they're pretty excellent. They are pretty excellent. I I got to to meet said baby um on screen before recording uh visually for for the first time and they're they're pretty damn cute. They're pretty damn awesome. Yeah, so they're just over eleven weeks old, and this week's big big um developmental leap was that they discovered their ears, <laughs> and so they've been falling asleep just holding on to them, and it is it is inordinately funny. That is freaking great. Oh man, babies are babies are rad. I've really come around on babies. I didn't I didn't appreciate them nearly enough when I was younger, but these days like, no, I'm I'm in full favor. They're really good. I mean, they're really good like at being babies. They're really bad at most other stuff. I'm terrible at badminton. It's just abysmal. It's 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 honestly kind of embarrassing to watch. Oh, come on, kid, get with it. Uh, but, um, you are, are back on the show after being gone for, for a while, um, and we're kind of starting in a strange place. Well, we kind of wanted to start with, with something that wasn't just me picking up mid-story where you and Al left off, so we decided to go back to something that we had neglected to cover before Operation Zero Tolerance, and that is the flashbacks. Yeah, Flashback was an event that Marvel did in summer 1997. It was actually right before Operation Zero Tolerance started. And it was a line-wide thing where every issue, 
uh, its issue number was minus one instead of wherever it left off, and it was a story set way in the past, usually in the vague vicinity of the Silver Age, but it kind of varied. And this wasn't just X stuff, this was all of Marvel. We're we're, we're just going to do the X stuff, though. Right. So, in addition to the the time period, yeah, they had Silver Age-esque covers. A lot of them were actually homages to specific Silver Age covers. Mm-hmm. They also had this classic corner boxes. They had a giant Comics Code logo on the cover. Their letters pages were done old school in the back. They're actually really fun. Like, so I work at a comic book company. Jay, you have worked at a comic book company. And seeing, like, this stuff, I'm just so impressed with whatever designers worked on these books. They must have had such a good time and also put in such long hours to so radically change everything. Yeah, yeah. Um, And we're going to be covering the 8x flashback issues over the course of two episodes and in addressing these you know we read through them and we we thought a lot about in what order we should cover them um since they're they're kind of a mess chronologically and marvel time means they're all over the place relative to each other and and where they are relative to each other varies so we decided to go with the old standard and we're doing it in alphabetical order yes exactly and weirdly i think it kind of works that way so uh, i'm excited for our arbitrary choice So we're starting our our flashback alphabet on the letter C with Cable minus one, The Devil's Herald. This issue is written by James Robinson, penciled by Jose Ladrone, inked by Juan Velasco, colored by Glennis Oliver, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft, although Comicraft is credited as Crow Quill Craft, because, you know, it's a flashback. Albeit not a flashback to when quills were in common use, but still. Well, a Crow Quill is a type of pen. Oh, well, I've learned something today. Maybe that was used to letter this? Probably not. It, it is the type of pen that was standardly used for, for hand lettering. I have so much more respect for that little touch. Okay, I already like this issue. Now I like it more. And part of why I like this issue so much is the creative team. James Robinson is a really fun writer. We've covered a number of his of his issues. He did the Operation Zero Tolerance part of Cable. He did uh, Generation X for a short storyline as well. But Jose Ladrone, the artist, holy crap, Jay. I love Ladrone's art so freaking much. It's such a good fit for Cable, and it's visually kind of anomalous for this for this, this period of Marvel. Like it just it doesn't really feel like it quite fits the rest of the line, and it's surprising to see on one of the, you know, Coraline X books, but it's really, really solid. And it's again just a really, really good tonal fit for the title. It is, yeah. Um, I may have mentioned this on the show before. I've heard Ladrone's art style described as Jack Kirby meets Mobius, and that's actually a really good way of putting it. Everyone's kind of blocky, very, like, physically emotive, and everything is super goddamn detailed. It's just this kind of throwback science fiction style that is awesome for Cable. Yeah, I want to see Ladrone drawing, like, two-fisted science adventures. Hell Yeah. But what we first see is Ladrone drawing Stan Lee. So here's the thing, listeners. Every single one of these flashback issues, and as we said, that was every Marvel comic for a month, starts with Stan Lee as Stan Lee, dressed in a way that's sort of appropriate for the comic or its story, introducing it. Sometimes it's a nice little quiet introduction, and other times it goes on for way the hell too long. Oh, Generation X! Yeah, yeah, that one, for instance. Uh, This one's pretty brief. It's Stan Lee with his, you know, mustache and aviators dressed as Cable, uh, complete with his left eyeglass lens glowing. It's it's pretty fun. 
just for the record, my mom did it better. Uh, yes, yes, Jay, your mom was the best cable cosplayer I've ever seen by far. So Stan cuts through the first page of cable number 45, the issue that will follow this one, and gives us our, our introduction, joking around, but it's only a couple pages, and soon we go right into the story, back in time, to Dr. Moira McTaggart and a very young Wolfsbane, Rain Sinclair, taking a boat to mainland Scotland from Muir Island. Whoa, 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 wait a second. I thought Moira didn't take custody of Rain until Rain was about 14. That is accurate. Uh, in original continuity in the New Mutants graphic novel, Moira rescued Wolfsbane from one of the many angry mobs in the Marvel Universe when Wolfsbane's powers manifested, and she was indeed a teenager then. Uh, Wolfsbane was. Which brings us to another common factor in the Minus Ones. These generally ignore established continuity in a lot of ways in a lot of places. How canonical they are and how much they've actually stuck around varies significantly, but I would say most of them have kind of been relegated to Apocrypha. I mean, I think my take is that the broad strokes have stuck around, but a lot of the details are definitely contradicted either by stuff that came before or stuff that came later. In the case of this issue, the general plot, I think, is pretty consistent. But uh, yes, Rain shouldn't be here. That being said, I'm glad she is, because Ladrone draws her hair in a really fun way. So, Moira and Rain are on their way to Scotland because they got a message from Angus McWhorter. Wait a minute, Angus McWhorter? The world's angriest hovercraft rental guy. Yeah, yeah, apparently he's Moira's contact in mainland Scotland at this point in history. Uh, we will next see him, which is to say we saw him years before in publication history in Uncanny Number 104, where he got mad at the X-Men for fucking up his hovercraft, and then in 119 when he was killed by Proteus. Right now, he's just kind of a nice guy with a big mustache. Obviously, a lot went down between Minus One and, and his, his next first appearance. Yup. Well, the thing going down right now is what Angus has called in Moira and Rain to check out, because Reverend Craig, the Scots Presbyterian jerk of a minister who's actually Rain's biological father, has summoned, you guessed it, an angry mob to the town square. But this isn't for Wolfsbane. I mean, this isn't like a little girl whose powers have just manifested. Instead, it is a gigantic dude with long white hair, wreathed in smoke, with a glowing eye, with goggles on his forehead, sort of generically tribal clothing, covered in pouches and straps and tech. This is a young Cable. What you're describing kind of makes him sound like hippie Cable. He looks a little hippie Cable-tacular, like if he was sort of hippie steampunk Cable, I guess. Okay. Man, remember how he just showed up and wandered around with a giant gun in the cartoon and it freaked people out and it was very funny because it's one of the only times you see people kind of reacting proportionately to Cable? Uh, right, exactly. I mean, they're definitely reacting to him here, but they're almost reacting, like, too much. I mean, yeah, he's weird looking, but he doesn't look all that threatening. He's also speaking in the Ascani language, and so we see in his word balloons those Ascani characters. Like, I don't know if there's an actual Ascani alphabet or just a collection of squiggles that represent it, but it definitely makes it clear. Like, nobody understands him, he came out of nowhere, he's covered in smoke. So, if you're going to be a horribly bigoted group of insular villagers, then I guess it makes some sense to freak out. Yeah, and Moira's appearance doesn't help much either. As Redfern Craig comments, she, the last time she showed up was also when they had gotten together an angry mob to cast out a demon, presumably in that case Wolfsbane. And Moira, for her part, responds, This man is a visitor. He's a guest. 
Try showing him some hospitality, Craig, instead of accusing him of being in league with Satan. For all you know, he came from above, not below. And if he did, it had Bodhi to speak kindly to him. I don't know, though. I mean, this dude has long white hair, one eye. You know, based on what Moira pointed out, right, he probably did come from above. He's probably Odin in disguise, testing these people. Seems reasonable to me. Does Odin do that in the Marvel Universe? Uh, canonically, yes. That whole thing of Odin as the Wanderer, who just, like, is a generic old dude and tests people based on how hospitable they are, uh, that has happened in the Marvel Universe. Cool. That is that is one of, like, the, 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 the canonical Odin details. I say as if as if it's just another, you know, continuity that I've, I've always really enjoyed. Yes, agreed. Well, the mob is about to mob Cable to death when his eye glows and wavy Silver Age lines come out and the crowd wanders off, including Craig, just, you know, realizing they have other stuff to do. Uh, in fact, Craig sees Cable as a clean-cut guy in a sweater vest and a bow tie, which is adorable. Clearly a throwback to his law school days. Or a throw-forward to his law school days? I guess throw-forward, yeah. So they head back to Muir Island, uh, Cable having apparently telepathically convinced everybody to wander away— and Muir Island is so cool looking. There are these cables and machines and tubes going through the non-mainland facing sides, mountainous rocks, like roots. I mean, the description here actually sums it up very well. The veins of science that lace its stone flesh are likewise only visible from seaward. Yeah, there's that Mobius part to Ladrone's art, just that immensely detailed techie techness. It's so freaking good. For his part, Cable looks at the ocean from there and remembers back in his own timeline, in his personal past, our future, when he was leading an army that was dressed in that same kind of tribal techno style as him, and talking all future weird. Uh, we get presumably the English translation of this. Scanny to far four, incoming brights, Canaanites on side of dusk, repel and repost, at them good-bad! I think I brought this up in Operation Zero Tolerance, too, but I love Robinson's weird little glimpses into Cable's past. Oh, for real! And also Ladrone, like, just compliments him so well, because Cable's army is fighting these robot demons on this enormous flaming ribcage, like, from some giant dinosaur or something, and they're carrying medieval swords and spears along with their enormous suitcase-sized guns, like— It's, it's all very brutal legend. It is very brutal legend, but, like, more science fiction, even. This is great. Because remember, Cable's timeline is, like, friggin' 2,000 years in the future. It should be ridiculously different from what we have right now. It should be alien in a literal sense. And between Robinson's dialogue and Ladrone's art, it really feels that way, and it's also just immensely badass. So, as Mara does with visitors, she takes him immediately into the... You know, giant machine room where she straps people to tables and measures things on them. And that's what her plan is with Cable. Yup. She'll actually use very similar tech to uh, measure Nate Gray, X-Man, years later, which is a, a nice little touch. Unfortunately, this power detector measuring machine uh, doesn't really work great on a dude with the techno-organic virus in his arm. And his arm goes all Akira-like and everything explodes and the narration is quite dramatic as wreckage falls toward her. Moira sees death descend upon her like a kestrel. She has half a thought, though nothing important. But death's talons never strike. The kestrel is driven away, and Moira has never felt arms so strong in Boulder. It's a large fucking kestrel. 
It's true. It's true. I mean, Cable's a large guy. He just brings large things back from the future, the beefy-sized future. Well, it's, it's a giant machine that's falling on her. Yes, yes. Uh, I, I just feel like he br- brought back the concept of large. Like, things just get larger around him. Is it him or is it the 90s? Like, I feel like he's he's more a product of, of his time than, than its catalyst. Hence the jams and the slap bracelets. But as Cable catches this gigantic Kestrel wreckage and collapses— uh, With his telekinesis. He doesn't, he doesn't just, like, catch it, catch it. Uh, right, yes, with his telekinesis, because he, he does have his powers. Um, he uses that contact to absorb language, to absorb the English language from Moira. He can now speak in that instead of Ascani. Which you would think would leave him with Moira's accent. Oh, that would have been so good, Cable, with just that bizarre Claremontian equivalent of a Scottish accent. Just violently fucking Scottish. <laughs> violently Scottish. The Nate Summers story. Oh, it's great. But yeah, they talk briefly now that they can, and he mentions, hey, I've got a mission I can't tell you about, but I promise it's for the good of the world, and she believes him. I mean, part of it is he just saved her life, so I'm sure she's motivated, but she's also generally a pretty decent judge of character. Generally. I mean, what with Magneto and all, she's she's probably used to hirsute white-haired gentlemen showing up and looking for Charles Xavier. And so off Cable goes. That's basically the end of the issue, aside from Stan Lee assuring us that Cable erased Wolfsbane's memory of him, to close that little continuity loophole. Uh, but don't worry, Rain, it's fine. You guys will meet up again, you'll start saying weird stuff, and he'll put you in a straitjacket. Friendship. Yup. But the last little glimpse we get is one of the most interesting, because in Switzerland around this time, Apocalypse awakens from the healing sleep he'd been in for ages. Like a sleepy child walking downstairs to get a glass of water from the kitchen. It's kind of great. Now I kind of resent that he's not wearing footed jammies. I know, right? Like mummy wrap style ones based on how we've seen him when he sleeps, I guess. No, they'd have little duckies on them. Oh, apocalypse duckies with the blue lips. Like King Todd. Yeah. So here's the thing, though. Apocalypse was not planning to awaken for another century or even more. That's when his alarm was going to go off, or his, you know, Apocalypse equivalent. But this burst of power of Cable arriving woke him up, and he's intrigued. And he decides to start all of his various plans for the world that much earlier. So in fact, it was Cable going back in time in part to stop Apocalypse— that made Apocalypse wake up when he did and cause all the damage that would make Cable's timeline occur. So you tried to stop the thing, Nate, and you made the thing happen. Womp womp. And that brings us to our next contestant in this game show of the past, Excalibur number minus one, A True and Terrible Sacrifice. This issue is written by Ben Robb, penciled by Rob Haynes and Casey Jones, inked by Nathan Massengill, Rob Haynes and Casey Jones, colored by Kevin Tinsley, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. The cover here is homaged on Kenny X-Men number 111, uh, with the carnival barker advertising the X-Men in a freak show, but this time it's Stan Barking and Nightcrawler's circus buddies on the posters. It's a fun little homage. So... This is going to be one of several versions of why Nightcrawler left the circus, and everything in it, every single detail, well, not every single detail, but every every significant detail is going to be contradicted multiple times all over the place, uh, most directly in the X-Men Origins Nightcrawler miniseries, but also basically in every other flashback to this era. One interesting thing is the comic that goes along with this most isn't even a canonical comic, except in as much as the X-Men movies are in their own universe, I assume. Uh, That's the prequel Nightcrawler comic that came out before X-Men 2. 
Huh. I have not read that. Now I am vaguely curious about it. Yeah, right? So, uh, anyway, continuity is a little weird here, but we're going in anyway. Okay, so this story is set shortly before Nightcrawler leaves the circus. In this case, he leaves it voluntarily. Again, that varies from version to version. And while he's happy there, again, in this version, um, he knows there's a world where people like him are outcasts, and he wants to go out there and make a difference, damn it. So, um... We've got a couple characters who are consistent aspects of his circus experience, and those are his foster mother, Margali Sardos, and his foster sister, Shemaine Sardos, who will later go by Amanda Sefton. Um, his foster brother, Stefan, gets hand-waved away, which is probably for the best, considering. Right. So, Jermaine and Stefan are Margali's biological kids. Uh, Kurt is, of course, adopted, his real parents being Mystique and kind of the devil. Uh, that's why when he's snogging with Jermaine all the time, it's less weird. Somewhat less weird. It's still pretty weird. But this issue really does portray Kurt as, like, a dashing, charming, debonair swashbuckler. Like, there are many different aspects of Nightcrawler, but that's what we get here. Yeah, Stefan gets mentioned in passing and that's it. And and again, I think that's a good choice because what happened with Stefan in general continuity is is that he and Kurt were best friends and he made Kurt promise to kill him if he ever became unaccountably evil. And then he became unaccountably evil and Kurt killed him. And then Margali trapped Kurt in a version of Dante's Inferno as revenge because comics. Yeah, that's the whole thing. So here and now, Kurt is a beloved trapeze artist. He performs in his in his natural state. Um, people assume that it's an elaborate costume and super cool looking, uh, half of which is correct. And he even gets away with using his powers to rescue Jemaine when, when she misses a catch at one point. Everyone just thinks, again, it's another cool trick. I really love that idea. I'm kind of reminded of those magician characters that were in WandaVision and also in the comics that WandaVision was partially based on, who are actual magicians who pose as, like, stage magicians, like, using real magic but passing it off as tricks. That's also, I mean, that that is that that shtick has been around since Mandrake. Oh yeah, Mandrake. He was in that one weird cartoon with like the Phantom and somebody else and somebody else. Buck Rogers. Maybe? Yeah, all the King Features guys. Oh okay. So Kurt at this point has decided to leave. He's going to be leaving soon, and he wants Jermaine to come with him when he goes. And she's very into the idea, but Margali is significantly less so. She informs Jemaine that while she hasn't brought this up before, Jemaine is in fact the last in and heir to a long line of sorceresses bound to protect the Winding Way. Um, this this acknowledgement comes complete with a cameo from not only the Soul Sword, but also Belasco. Now, remember, the Soul Sword, <clears throat> which Jemaine, as Amanda Sefton, will indeed later claim after Ilyana dies, it doesn't exist yet. Ilyana Rasputin created the Soul Sword when she was in Limbo. But Margali does have the power of prophecy. She's showing the future. What's interesting is she's showing the future a little more than she wants, because this vision of Velasco states that the Soul Sword must be protected from the schemes of the duplicitous Margali. And in fact, um, yes, Amanda's biggest mistake is not protecting the Soul Sword from the schemes of the duplicitous Margali later on in Warren Ellis's run. It's a fun little detail. This is an issue by Ben Robb, and sometimes he gets continuity wrong, but clearly he has a lot of it rolling around in his brain. <laughs> Speaking of getting continuity wrong, Belasco also claims here that Ilyana claims the Soul Sword rather than creating it. To Belasco's and Ben Robb's dubious credit, uh, that is so goddamn ambiguous as continuity progresses, which makes me sad because it was very clear initially. Alright, so this is where the comic for me goes off the rails. The next day, the 
the master aerialist of the circus, a guy named Sabu, um, is, is hanging out with Jemaine and asks if he can sub in for her in the in the show that night because it's Kurt's last show and he he wants to, you know, do one last show with his student before Kurt goes. And Jemaine's like, yeah, that's cool. But it turns out it's a trap. And um, this beloved character who we've seen for a total of like two pages falls during the show and Kurt can't catch him in time. Um, and Amanda is, of course, horrified and her horror is only multiplied when Margali shows up disguised as Belasco and tells Jemaine that no, Sabu's death is important of things to come once she leaves. So Jemaine stays. And that's why Nightcrawler left the circus, and Jemaine didn't until a fair bit later, it would seem. Side note, Jemaine as an acrobat wears the same outfit that Nightcrawler did, and that makes me sad we never got any more of Jemaine slash Amanda as an acrobat, because she was really good too. What gets me is the tragic sacrifice, and the clearly supposed to be deeply impactful sacrifice of a dude we meet for like 10 seconds. To be fair, that dude's beard was very good, and I was sad for its loss. You don't know that the beard was lost. Well, that's true. I guess they could have kept it, hung it on the wall, or taped it to somebody else's face. Yeah, you don't you don't let a beard that good just, just get buried. Mm, no. Beard taxidermists do important work. So that brings us to Generation X number minus one, the beginning of a beautiful friendship. A friendship that may or may not have had a beautiful beard. I don't think it actually does. Here we've got another issue written by James Robinson. This one is penciled by Chris Pacello, inked by Al Vey, colored by Marie Javins, and lettered by Comicraft. And the cover here is inspired by Uncanny X-Men number 29, Mimic versus Super Adaptoid. And actually, the first page art, kind of like Cable, is from the next issue, which is Generation X number 29. That's another 29! What does it mean? My god, who could have guessed? So yeah, for, for some reason, Stan Lee is dressed like Chamber at the beginning of this one. And he introduces all the characters, but the only two who are actually going to be appearing in this story are Emma Frost and Banshee. Lee's take on that is... Our flashback saga doesn't include any of them! We just didn't want them to feel left out! On the one hand, it would be a waste of a page. On the other hand, it's a page drawn by Chris Pacello, and Chris Pacello does everything delightfully, so if he wants to draw more characters, bless him. So this story starts with Emma at 16, kicked out of her home and making a living via sneaking into fancy parties and psychically grabbing insider trading tips from the guests, which is kind of brilliant and a very, very Emma Frost way to make ends meet. Yeah, and this does tie in with Emma's backstory pretty nicely. Indeed, she was on her own and broke for a while. This is in that period. And damn, but James Robinson writes a good Emma. Yeah, yeah, he really, really does. It kind of makes me wish that we'd gotten to see him do more of it. Agreed, yeah, he could have been a good Gen X writer, especially since, as Al and I found out, Larry Hama's Gen X run starts a little rough. So, at this particular party, Emma catches a thought from a man thinking about having killed someone with his powers, and that man turns out to be none other than Harry Leland of the Hellfire Club. That's the guy with the big beard who can control people's individual gravity and eventually dies of a heart attack. Oh, Bacello's Harry Leland is great. He's huge. We know that Bacello draws people uh, in a great many ranges of sizes, but he also just looks so dashing. He's got this long red ponytail. His beard is so impressively full. He's got these little hoop earrings that totally bring the look together. Like, this guy is a confident dandy, but he's also really good at presenting himself, as he should be if he's a super powerful rich guy in the Hellfire Club. His description and the talk of Chris Bacello's art, um... Reminds me that this issue made me realize something that I wanted that I never knew that I wanted until now. What's that? That is Kyle Baker inking over Chris Pacello. 
Oh shit, that would be amazing. Right? So Emma is overextending her powers, and she ends up leaving with a migraine, only to get jumped by some bodyguards who are waiting outside for their employers. I was trying to figure out who those bodyguards were visually based on, because they look super familiar. Like, I've seen caricatures in old comics and TV shows and stuff of those faces. I was thinking, maybe it was the Rat Pack, but no, I looked them up, and it doesn't look like them. Maybe it was Humphrey Bogart? No. But it's clearly specific people, and I don't know who. I got absolutely nothing there. If you know the answer to this, listeners, we would love to hear it. Meanwhile, equally in the dark is NYPD officer Sean Cassidy, who is stalking out the party with his partner, waiting for Harry, Le- Harry Leland, and he sees these, these guys menacing Emma, and he rushes to intervene. But before he can get there, Dark Beast arrives and swoops everyone up, leaving only blood behind. So I guess we should talk about what's up with Sean and Dark Beast at this point. So Sean Cassidy, better known as Banshee, was a cop for a while in New York. That's this period for Ooh. him. Yeah, well... And Dark Beast had arrived from the Age of Apocalypse when it was kind of sort of destroyed a while before this. So he is somewhat newly in Earth-616. Yeah, he's he's been here long enough to set up a home base, but he's not really himself. This Dark Beast is really different from what we've seen before at this point, really mostly in the Age of Apocalypse and a bit subsequently. He's disoriented, he's amnesiac, almost childlike, with only a vague sense of who he is. He knows he knows science, and he knows he experiments on people, but that's pretty much it. And his lair underground really highlights all of those things. Like, it's clear he's been trying to do science. Everything is very organized, but it's all skulls and jars of eyes. And it's clear that it's just a bunch of scientific gore with no real direction. He's just cataloging things, trying to figure it out. Very much what you'd get if, like, a very violent child wanted to play scientist. Oh, that's a good way of putting it. As Dark Beast puts it, I think I came here from someplace else. There was me and lots of others like me. We were bright colors and powers. We were in control. And I was smart. Smart enough to know what science. And now? I remember formulas. I remember equations. But I don't remember what they're for. I know when I was smart, I experimented on people. To have more knowledge. To learn. And again, he's attempting to continue that here, although he no longer really knows what he's doing. That is not his plan for Emma, though. He has seen Emma before, and he wants to be friends. He figures they can help each other, and she is game. Um, She can help him remember the past, he can protect her, and when he regains his knowledge, maybe it'll be something that'll help them both out. They are about to shake on that bargain when Banshee bursts in, figuring that Dark Beast is a monster menacing Emma. To Banshee's credit, he did see Dark Beast shred the crap out of those familiar caricature bodyguards who were being creepy. Yeah, but it's like Marvel New York in the, what, at this point, 80s? Yeah, that's, that, that's Friday night. Good point, good point. Now, Emma is super gratified that Sean is trying to help her, um, and she psychically calms Dark Beast down before he can kill and dissect Sean. Yeah, Dark Beast has kind of a mad-on for Sean, even context irregardless. He knows he remembers him from somewhere, which makes sense, because Banshee was in fact one of the X-Men who opposed Dark Beast in the Age of Apocalypse. He doesn't remember who this guy is, or why he makes him so mad, but his response to him is immediate, instinctual, and homicidal. 
But Emma gets him to back off, and when Sean's partner and Harry Leland show up, she psychic whammies them to forget her, take Sean to the hospital, and then go home to bed, possibly together. I love how grateful Emma is, even for this dude that almost fucked everything up. Like, for her, someone actually caring enough to try to help, especially at this abandoned point in her life, is so meaningful. She's got two friends now. The supervillain from another timeline, and the cop, who's might or might not make it. Oh, Emma, you've, uh, it's okay, things will get better. Also worse. Also, one time you'll blow up a pony. Every girl's dream. So let's talk continuity about this one, because this is a little odd. Yeah, this doesn't really jive with the timeline in which Dark Beast was responsible for the Morlocks. Because we did learn that in X-Men Prime number one somewhat obliquely a number of years before this. I don't know, from what I understand, and it's hard to find real details on this, but I think Dark Beast found the already existing Morlocks, the mutants who couldn't pass as human and were living underground, and started messing with them to make them even more scientifically interesting. So I think he only started working on the younger generations of Morlocks, like the ones who would become Gene Nation, like Marrow and stuff. But they're not that much younger than Emma. They were at this point, because remember, they spent some time in a dimension where they aged faster. When Marrow left Earth-616, yeah, she was a little girl. Still, it's weird, and as we've said before, this whole thing with Dark Beast and Sugar Man having been sent to the past of 616 to do formative stuff, it's weird and I don't like it. It's pretty silly. Speaking of silly villains, uh, there is there is one who long-time listeners might recognize who is going to be coming back in Uncanny X-Men Minus One, The Boy Who Saw Tomorrow. This issue is written by Scott Lobdell, penciled by Brian Hitch, inked by Paul Neary, colored by Steve Bucciolato, and lettered by Richard Starkings. Huh, no comic craft. Or crow quill craft. That Jose Ladrone, our guy we mentioned earlier who did the cable issue, he actually does the cover of this. It's really fun. It's Boulevard Trask, the creator of the Sentinels, creating cradling a fallen Larry Trask, his son, with a robed Rachel Summers looking benevolent behind them, and a terrifying robot looming in the background. It is fucking master mold. So, if I were doing a flashback issue, and I had to choose, like, a character and moment to go back to that was pivotal in the Marvel Universe, like, really, really central, you know, I had to choose someone to hinge that story on, I would probably not go with Larry Trask. I mean, he does have a pretty rad fashion sense, and we'll definitely get to that. <sighs> so this time, Stanley is dressed as the Watcher, looking through an enormous sci-fi telescope and watching the X-Men spaceship in trouble in space in Uncanny X-Men 345. Because, yeah, remember, the Uncanny X-Men team, as opposed to the adjectiveless X-Men team, were on their space mission during Operation Zero Tolerance, so they still are at this point. So instead... Stan takes us through the hallowed halls of Marvel, into the Hall of Statues, to a statue of Professor X and various different eras of the X-Men, which is really just a chance for Brian Hitch and Paul Neary to draw a bunch of different X characters, and given how Alan Davis their style is, I'm fine with that. I'm not fine with the fact that they say Storm showed up in the 80s. Yeah, I mean, Mohawk Storm showed up in the 80s, and it's Mohawk Storm. But still, man, she was part of the second team. Mm -hmm. They don't mention Wolverine at all, which I find amusing. Yeah, no, that's terrific. Anyway, the actual story starts on page six, and what a story this is. We'll do our best to get through this in a reasonable amount of time. 
So we begin in Annandale on Hudson in New York, where an 11-year-old Jean Grey has stayed up later than she should because she got carried away in her prayers praying nice things about Professor Xavier, who a little bit before this had helped her when she went catatonic when she absorbed the mind of her best friend Annie Richardson when Annie died. That was revealed in the weirdly influential Bizarre Adventures number 27, which we covered like a million episodes ago. That was the one where she became a mermaid later, right? Uh, yes, I, I believe so. Uh, also, Iceman was at a carnival, and Nightcrawler did some wacky stuff. Hey. So, Jean and her father, John, watch A Falling Star, which lands in South Dakota, which is where the plot goes for the rest of the issue. This is Rachel Summers, the alternate future daughter of Jean, kind of. And Rachel is here in her red mullet looking very Alan Davis Excalibur. I have zero complaints about that. Like, I'm not saying Brian Hitch is just an Alan Davis clone, but their styles are appealing in similar ways. Hitch evokes Davis really effectively, and he can handle Davis's character designs really, really well. And this is, this is honestly, I think this is Rachel's best look. Like, I, I miss that mullet. Oh, I completely agree. Like, I know that stuff's not fashionable anymore, which is unfortunate because mullets are awesome, but but still, she, she did it so well. I think it also helps, by the way, that Paul Neary inks Davis a bunch, and so those inks make the two artists look even more similar. Sir, I will have you know that mullets are extremely 20-something queer fashion. Good. Good, I'm glad. I guess I don't hang out with a lot of 20-something anybody's these days. That old. Rachel here, speaking of fashion, is in a fancy cloaked outfit, kind of reminiscent of what she was wearing in the X-Men Phoenix miniseries. Remember, she is mostly 2,000 years into the future at this point, because she was pulled into the time stream at the end of Excalibur number 71. So she's taken a break from founding the Ascani religion to follow somebody back to the present of Earth-616. It's kind of neat. The captioning comments that she still feels like this is home. And that makes sense because she spent so long here. Maybe she spent longer growing up in Earth 811, Days of Future Past, but Earth 616 was where she really just got to be a person and just live her life for a while. Yeah, yeah, I really like that detail. And she uses a tiny bit of the Phoenix Force left within her because she only has a small amount of it to light up the room she's crashed into— and there's a giant, squatting, purple, red, and yellow sentinel staring blankly forward. Who's this, Jay? This is Master Mold, the giant sentinel who poops out on their sentinels. That's right, and Rachel knows her history. She knows that in a few years, Master Mold will be finished and create lots and lots of other sentinels, leading into the horrible dark future she grew up in, days of future past. But before then, Cyclops will convince them to go fight the sun. Yup. And in fact, speaking of someone behind the Sentinels that Cyclops convinced to go fight the sun, it's Larry Trask. It is the grimacing pink close-up face of Larry Trask seeing the future and muttering bits and pieces of it. And uh, what Larry Trask gives us are, are tiny bits of callbacks to a, a story you might recognize. See them. Dark. Threatening. Violent. Different from us. Different. And deadly, trying to help us all? But others oppose them, want to destroy. No, the others want to kill humans. A human, politician, a man of power. The human that can make a difference? So what he's describing is the X-Men protecting Senator Kelly from assassination in Days of Future Past. 
And it's kind of cool that this is mentioned in this issue, the issue right before Operation Zero Tolerance, because, of course, Senator Kelly becoming a better dude is a big part of how the Operation Zero Tolerance plot plays out. Now, before we go any further, we should probably take a minute to explain the Trasks, because this issue really doesn't. So unless you remember their Silver Age appearances, you're going to be kind of baffled. So Bolivar Trask was the first Trask that we met. He was played by Peter Dinklage in the Days of Future Past movie. He is Daddy Trask. He's Daddy Trask. And he was an anthropologist who used his anthropology to make giant robots to kill mutants, as one does. Yeah, they never really explain that one. They never really need to. The Silver Age was a different time. Now, Bolivar has two kids, Larry and Tanya, and Larry and Tanya are in fact both mutants. Tanya has long since disappeared, but Bolivar suppresses Larry's mutation with the aid of a giant disco medallion, which Larry generally wears over a turtleneck for reasons he can't quite recall, only that he knows he must never remove this giant disco medallion, presumably for fear of becoming a square. Okay, even Hitch and Neary can't make that amulet look anything but ridiculous. I love that this dude is just living his life, going about his day-to-day stuff, wearing a giant goddamn disco medallion over his perpetual turtleneck. I was describing this whole situation to T while I was working on the outline to this, and um, she referred to it as a conversion therapy medallion, which uh, isn't wrong. That's not wrong, yeah. There's also Simon Trask, who is just boring enough that I don't even remember how he's related. He runs... Humanity's Last Stand, maybe? One of the anti-mutant groups, but uh, he also sucks, but less interestingly. Simon Trask, the lesser Trask. The trashiest Trask. He doesn't have a disco medallion at all. <laughs> what a loser. So, so at this point in, in, in their anthropologizing up Master Mold, um, the Trasks are starting to have some second thoughts, like, should we make a giant genocide machine that poops out other genocide machines? Is this perhaps venturing into a morally gray area? More like morally purple. But yeah, because the thing is, Larry doesn't know he's a mutant. The Disco Medallion doesn't just suppress his powers, it suppresses his knowledge of his powers. And so Bolivar wonders, huh, I mean, should I really kill a bunch of mutants? My son's a mutant. Yes, they're dangerous. But my son is just sort of a person, and you get the impression that at this point in Bolivar and Larry's lives, they could backtrack. It's not too late for them to decide to not do what they're doing. Sorry, I got distracted imagining someone dressing up as Larry Trask because of a convention and having to explain to everyone who they were. (laughs) I love very specific cosplay. Do you remember that person that showed up at a convention we were at dressed as Forge's first appearance, complete with the tiny shorts? Someday, probably in about 20 years... Or, or slightly more, because I feel like I need to be old enough to pull this off right. I am going to go as that janitor from the Excalibur cover. <laughs> Perfect. I love this plan. Gonna do it. So Rachel is watching all of this, keeping herself telepathically invisible, and thinking, It would be so easy to simply rearrange his thinking, realign his misguided priorities. With something less than a stray thought, I could prevent a thousand as-yet-unrealized tragedies. And yet, no one knows better than I the amount of damage that can be done once time is altered. Yeah, you you get no end of sequels. Hey, she did end up saving her timeline in Days of Futures Yet to Come. Like, it was an important story. It was good. 
But Rachel gets psychically smashed by a woman in a hound jumpsuit and a blue bathrobe. This is Sanctity, another member of the Ascani. And she is furious, and she is here to prevent the Trask's plan. And oh, this complicated Lady J, where do we start? Okay, I'm going to skip ahead straight to the end and say, this, this is Tanya Trask. Right. So that lost kid that we mentioned, uh, the other young Trask, she disappeared because her mutant power is time travel, and eventually she didn't come back. What happened, we learned, between this and a number of other stories, is that when Rachel Summers was lost in the timeline for 2,000 years, which I don't know how that didn't, like, eradicate her brain, she found Tanya lost there as well. And they became friends. Rachel took her to the future that she ended up in, and left her with the Order of Witnesses. Uh, Some relation to that guy who's not exactly Gambit. Long story. In X-Men Phoenix, that miniseries we covered in episode 257, The Adventures of Rachel Summers in the 37th Century, uh, yeah, the Order of Witnesses was destroyed, and Rachel's clan Ascani saved this little girl, taking her in. So after the destruction of Clan Ascani and the death of Rachel Summers, which happened basically in, in um, The Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix, Sanctity fled and founded the Ascani Sisterhood, which would then train young Cable after Scott and Jean returned to the past. That happens in 1995's Ascani Sun miniseries, which we haven't covered. Maybe we will someday. She, in fact, was the Ascani sister who sent Scott and Jean to Victorian England to make sure Nathaniel Essex became sinister to make Cable oppose Apocalypse. Um, that was the further adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix, which we covered in episode 319, Giant Size Special Number 9. So the short-ish version is that Tanya Trask, who goes by Sanctity and the Ascani world in which she spent her later childhood and adult life— is another Ascani priestess, a friend of Rachel Summers, eventually kind of a rival, and eventually a successor. And now she's here, having escaped to the present day of Earth-616, and Rachel has followed her. And she is here, actually, for the same reason that Rachel originally, well, didn't herself travel back in time, but facilitated time travel. Um, That is to try to change the past in order to change the future. Yeah, apparently everyone had been relying on a certain group of mutants, but that didn't work out, as Sanctity tells Rachel. The fact that humanity waited so long for the Twelve, and that they so sorely disappointed us, that was wrong. Oh, the Twelve, that's another... And I gotta say, as an X-Men reader, I identify with that sentiment. (laughs) Right. So the Twelve were first mentioned in X-Factor number 13 and 14... And only Master Mold, you know, the robot being built right now, knew of them. And then in Power Pack 36 of all issues, where where Master Mold comes after Franklin, uh, we find out that Franklin was maybe one of the members of the Twelve, one of the Twelve powerful mutants that would be instrumental in how the future goes. In Uncanny 246 and 247, the end of the Australia era, Master Mold says that his main mission is destroying the Twelve. And in X-Factor number 68, Apocalypse knows about the Twelve and thinks Iceman may be one. So this has been built up as this huge deal. These Twelve mutants, who may be mutants we already know, like X-Men or villains or whatever, are going to change everything. And the actual storyline, the Twelve, will show up about three years after this issue. After waiting so long, we will generally be sorely disappointed. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that is maybe the biggest letdown in X-Men history. There's a pretty good cable issue in there. Oh, there is that. That's true. 
So Sanctity manages to bypass Rachel as they fight and heads to the lab where she's recognized by Bolivar. He recognizes her as his daughter, Tanya, all grown up. She's back in the present, and she is here to tell her dad and her fashionable brother that despite their intentions, they're actually just going to cause so much more suffering for Earth and the people that live on it. And it seems like maybe she's going to get through until Rachel telepathically freezes Bolivar and erases his memory of seeing Tanya. She is not going to let Tanya alter the time stream. She is convinced that is only going to make things even worse. As she says. What were you thinking, Tanya? You must have known I would come back and stop you. What were you hoping to gain by this? Nothing. Everything. Maybe the peace of mind in knowing that I tried? Maybe I just wanted to see my family again one last time. Oh, oh, Tanya. Oh, Sanctity. So back they go to the future, leaving things as they were. Or they would. Because Larry goes outside to get some fresh air to, you know, air out his medallion. And he sees the destruction from the battle that Rachel and Tanya had. And so he knows, with destruction like that out there, there must be mutants out there, dangerous mutants, and they must be stopped. And he goes to tell his dad. So Tanya coming back is, at least in this timeline, which I am convinced is a branch timeline for reasons that we'll get to shortly, Tanya's visit to prevent the future is actually what started the future on its track. Just like Cable's visit to the present to stop Apocalypse from rising is what caused Apocalypse to rise. Yep, this is a theme. But Tanya did one other thing before she left, and this is why I think this is a branch timeline. She implanted and then hid information about the Twelve into Master Mold. It's unclear why she did this. And at this point of publication, editor Mark Grunewald had established that you can't change the past, you just create timeline branches. So... Here's what I think. I think the Sentinel program would have advanced anyway. Something else would have set would have set off the Trasks. This is a splinter timeline where the Twelve makes sense. Oh, oh, gotcha. I wish the Twelve made sense. They seemed so cool. Well, yeah, you gotta talk to Tanya Trask for that. I'll see what I can do. Hey, Sanctity! So, after all of those flashbacks, after all of that continuity, we've certainly been left with some questions. And, hey, so have you. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, Have you guys read Neil Gaiman's 1602? If so, what are your thoughts on that version of the X-Men? Oh man, we used to be so into 1602 when it came out when we were in college. We were big Neil Gaiman fans in general, and Neil Gaiman doing Marvel and continuity was the coolest freaking thing. So my short answer to this is, I really like those X-Men. I take significant issue with the version of Magneto. Well, let's talk about that, yeah, because X-Men, I agree. It's a cool take on the X-Men in the year of 1602, having them hiding from the Inquisition makes sense. Like, you want to kind of narrow metaphors when you have a miniseries, so that really works. I think the characters generally feel right. Like, Angel has this tortured passion that fits him well. Um... Jean disguises herself as a boy because it's 1602, and, like, just her dedication and frustration really bring her personality to the fore as well. I think that's also kind of an interesting take on the fact that in the Silver Age, she had no personality other than being the girl. It's a fun little twist on that. But as for Magneto, so, yeah, Magneto in 1602 is the High Inquisitor of the Inquisition, 
but he's using that position to secretly rescue mutants who can pass as human to keep them alive. And I suspect that's the part you take issue with, right? It is, yeah, because Magneto has always kind of been a moral absolutist when it comes to mutants. He has, yeah. And my only take here, especially with the version of him we see later on when he basically goes for a you're with me or against me thing, like when the acolytes are around and stuff, like, he does sometimes compromise if it means being able to stay pure and save some people. So I kind of feel like in a world even more hostile to mutants than Earth-616, maybe he would just do what he needed to to save some mutants, like he would be willing to kind of be the bad guy to at least do some good. Mm, but collaborating with humans on that scale, I don't know. I, I have, I, I also am not super fond of it given Magneto's main timeline backstory. No, that is entirely fair. Like, I think it's an interesting twist, but it's, it's, it's one that I, I, that just, just kind of sits wrong with me. I do really love those versions of the X-Men for reasons that, um, for for the you know the reasons that you talked about, I think I think they're characterized really spot on. I think there are some aspects of their dynamics and portrayal that are that just just nail and distill the best parts of those characters. Oh yeah, yeah, listeners. If you haven't read sixteen oh two, I mean, we did just spoil a little bit of it, but there's so much to it. It's actually really fun. Like Gaiman gets it in some cool ways. Earl asks via email. Hello, I was recently listening to an old podcast you did on Longshot, formerly of the X-Men, and wanted to know, what is Rube Goldbergian luck? Okay, so Rube Goldberg was a cartoonist, and he was best known for drawing these overly complicated machines to perform simple tasks in incredibly and impractically overcomplicated ways, so much so that that style of machine is now known as a Rube Goldberg machine. So in this case, Rube Goldbergian luck would be luck that manifests through a similarly improbable and convoluted chain of events, as Longshots has been known to do. And if you want a good illustration of what Rube Goldberg machines can look like, there was an old computer game, might be kind of hard to find or play these days, called The Incredible Machine, where you had to build Rube Goldberg devices to accomplish goals using things like cats and alligators and fishbowls and gears and pulleys and stuff, and it was really silly and fun. So normally, this is the part of the podcast where we thank some of our Patreon supporters, and we are an entirely Patreon-supported, listener-supported show. It's what helps us stay on the air and ad-free. And we're going to get back to those thanks next week, but this week we wanted to kind of take this time and spotlight and give a special thanks to Al Kennedy, who has been kind enough to fill in for me um, for the last couple months to give me time to sort of learn the ropes of new parenting, who is phenomenal and whom you can catch on a regular basis on his home podcast, House to Astonish. Yeah, Al and I got to do uh, more than two months of episodes together, and it was such a genuine pleasure to, to work with Al. Like, he seemed to pick things up basically immediately. And so, yes, Al, we are so grateful for you stepping in for so long. Thank you. And if you liked that run, and you know, even if you're just jumping in with this one, you should definitely, definitely follow Al Back to House to Astonish as well. It's with Paul O'Brien, whom you've heard on this show in the Secret Convergence of Infinite podcast. Oh, which Al masterminded. So it all, all circles back. Um, we'll drop a link to that in the visual companion to this episode. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. New episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. 
If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. And please rate and review us on your favorite podcasting platform. It really helps. Next week, we'll continue our long, strange trip into the past with the other half of the Minus Ones. (laughs) 